Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Dr. John Hammond. John retired in 2010 after 41 years of continuous service for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He has been a teacher, school principal, college lecturer, college president and education director for the church at conference and union levels. He's also been a graduate supervisor at Massey University, where he completed his PhD in geography. From 2001 to 2010, John was the National Director Adventist Schools Australia. John is married to Sue and they have three married children and four grandchildren. In 2006, John nearly died after breaking his neck and back and spent a long time in a coma and many months in hospital. John has also travelled extensively in remote Australia and his hobby is making quality knives. He is a much sought after speaker and storyteller and is equally at home in front of an audience or alone in his workshop. My conversation with John will extend over two hours. The second hour will be broadcast next week. In this first hour, I'll be talking with John about his professional life and retirement. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Barry. And with an introduction like that, I can hardly wait to hear what I have to say. Well, we'll launch straight into our questions then. John, how did you break your neck and back? Well, I... uh It'd be good if I could say something heroic like I was base jumping or parachuting, but I was just going for a walk at Port Macquarie with my wife early one morning. Fell over, landed the wrong way with an outstretched arm, and uh, I didn't realise I'd broken my neck. I worked for four days, preached, and uh, finally felt terrible and uh, went to see a doctor, was admitted to hospital, and I knew nothing for many weeks. Mm. So tell me about that experience of hospital. Well, um, I sort of remember walking into the hospital uh, and then I had developed pneumonia and uh, if it wasn't for the persistence of my wife and my two daughters, I would not be sitting here. Um, the hospital staff thought that I was uh, going into some form of early dementia because I was talking absolute rubbish. And uh, they fired up when they heard that. And uh, finally they put me into uh, a, a higher level of supervision and I just stopped breathing and didn't breathe for an hour and a half. Now, obviously, I was being ventilated. And uh, because I'd broken my neck and I was wearing a halo brace, they couldn't tilt my head back to put in a tracheotomy. And uh, finally, after an hour and a half, they said they will try once more because there was obviously a lot of brain damage. And they got it in and I started to breathe. And uh, then I was in intensive care for quite a few weeks. The coma. In a coma. The first thing I heard uh, was my two daughters who took matters into their own hands in the middle of the night and got on either side of me and they called out, Dad! And I opened my eyes and they called for the doctor in charge of ICU and they said he just opened his eyes and apparently he said, uh, this is not really happening, don't, don't get excited. They said he opened his eyes and uh, I heard a voice say to me, John, if you can hear me, uh, move your eyelashes because apparently that's one of the last things that you can control in a coma. And did I bat my eyelashes? Uh, Britney Spears never batted her eyelashes any better than I did. 
uh, I thought that I was in a coffin because I had this brace on and I couldn't move and I just didn't want to be buried alive. But uh, within an hour and a half, I was able to communicate. I couldn't talk because of the, the tubes, but uh, that started a long recovery. They then left me on my own, and that morning, God spoke to me. Uh, it was the greatest words of encouragement you will ever hear. He simply said, your work is not yet finished. Did you hear a voice, or was this just something that you heard in your mind? Uh, it was somewhere in between. It was more powerful than a than a, uh, a voice you hear in your mind. It wasn't a voice that I could hear and turn to, to, to try and work out the source, but in my mind it was completely clear that God was talking to me. How did you respond to that? How did you feel? I... I think I just sort of lay there and took it, but in the many months that followed, I was able to reflect on, on the enormity of what he had just said. You, you've got to go through an experience like that to be able to realize the degree of assurance that you'd receive after, after nearly dying uh, to hear from God that he, he still had a work for you. How did your wife and family deal with all of this? Well, they suffered far more than I did. Uh, the the uh, sensation to me was nothing. People said to me, what was it like on the other side? I said, I wouldn't have a clue. Uh, many months later, uh, I, when I saw the doctor, he, he got quite emotional when he saw me. He said, you were closer to death than any patient we've ever had in ICU, and you came through. Uh, my wife and, and family suffered far more than I did. They both managed, daughter and, and, and wife, both managed to have car accidents because they were completely absorbed, but I was, I was oblivious. I was just a recipient of care. Hmm. What have been the long-term consequences of the injury for you personally? I made a very good recovery. Um, the broken back came later because uh, I was released after nearly four months with the broken neck, just longing to get home. And the night that I got home, my back broke because while I was in hospital, I picked up a golden staph infection and it lodged in my spine and just turned it to mush and it snapped. And uh, so that put me back in the hospital. Um, and God wanted me to go back because the surgeon, the, the next surgeon, came to me and he said, look, I've got patients in this ward who are very discouraged and can you go and talk to them? I ended up with a prayer list of 32 people I would pray for every day. I looked like an electric power station walking in with my halo brace and all, the, all everything else. And uh, I'm sure God sent me back to the hospital because my work wasn't finished there either. That's uh, a pretty amazing story. I can't imagine what that would have been like to break your neck and then spend an extended period in hospital and then to find you've got a broken yeah, back. It was, I went back without any sense of discouragement. By this stage, knowing that God had a work for me, I went back quite cheerfully, even though hospitals aren't my, my favorite place. Uh, I thought, well, God wants me to go back. I'll go back willingly. And so back I went. This was the Epworth Hospital in, in Melbourne, and they did look after me very well. At the time, you were National Director for Adventist Schools Australia, and I imagine you had a pretty busy program. 
What did it feel like to have so much time away from work and then and then to go back to your work after that? Uh, very frustrating as I was recovering. Uh, f- for the first few months, I couldn't have cared. Uh, when I got home, uh, my my because I'd been starved of oxygen for a long time, my brain wasn't functioning. I had a book that I was trying to read. It took me two months to read past page one. I would read a paragraph, and then I'd forget what the first paragraph was about. And so I just sat there in, in a chair. Um, and as I started to get better, the, the church was very good to me. They, they let me come back at my own pace. Uh, I went a little bit too fast in coming back on occasions, and then I would back off. But uh, it did take a while to get back to full strength of traveling and, and trying to concentrate for long periods, but it eventually returned. I'd like to ask you how the injury and your convalescence actually changed you. You've alluded to the fact that you were able to be a blessing to others in the hospital situation. Did it change you in any fundamental way, your outlook on life? Uh, Physically, it slowed me down. Uh, As far as my outlook on life was concerned, I think I was uh, far more tolerant of people who were struggling. Um, I realised that nobody is invulnerable. Everybody has a breaking point. And I think God wanted to slow me down. Um, I thrived on hard work and being busy. And God said, I'm going to slow you down for a while. It seems like he certainly got your attention. He got my complete attention. (laughs) John, you've travelled extensively in remote Australia, including a crossing of Australia. Tell me about your journeys. I uh, had my accident in 2006, and uh, by 2008 I was feeling much better. Uh, 2007 was wiped out. I love exploring. I love quiet, empty places. I wanted to prove to the doctors I could stay away from them for a month. And so with a friend of mine in West Australia, we planned to do this trip from the most easterly point of Australia, which is Byron Bay, to the most westerly point, which is a steep point in uh, Shark Bay in West Australia. So we did a lot of planning. Uh, We'd done quite a lot of desert work already, so we were fairly experienced at getting out of bogs and repairing vehicles. And uh, we set off, and uh, just two vehicles, and it took us a month. And it was the most therapeutic and marvellous travel experience of my life. Now, you went from east to west. Did you come back? West uh, yes, uh, we drove back. Sue flew across to uh, to Perth, and we drove back across the Nullarbor, camping as we went. Uh, but it was just a marvellous trip, so remote that in portions of West Australia, as we entered the Gibson Desert, uh, we went for three days without seeing a single person. So you imagine the supplies of. Uh, fuel and water and radio equipment and repair stuff that you take with you on a, on a trip like that. It, it's Some people are scared of the thought of breaking down, but we found it exhilarating to think that if something went wrong, we were the ones who were going to fix it. Otherwise, mm. you'd have to abandon your vehicle. So your motivation was just to get away from it all, but surely there's a way of getting away from it all that doesn't involve you know, all that preparation and risk and so forth. Oh, it's the adventure, Barry. 
Is this is this because um, of your interest in geography as well? Were you interested in landscape or? Uh, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> a geographer enjoys the world, um, and uh, just being able to to explore in the desert uh, and be on your own and see God's wonderful creation. And we do live in the best country in the world. Did you experience any emergencies on your trip? Uh, well, on on our trips, we have had everything from seven flat tires in a day. We carry four uh, spares, three spare wheels, lots of tools and puncture things. But we did uh, break a tooth uh, in the front differential on my Land Cruiser in the Simpson Desert, and we worked all night. Uh, to remove the constant four-wheel drive flanges and the drive shafts and lower the tire pressures down to 12. And we got out because they were going to charge uh, $5,000 to come in and get us. That's, that's a very good motivation towards being a practical mechanic. It doesn't sound like you're an amateur at this business. You learn as you go. What did you learn from the experience about yourself? I mean, hospital would have taught you a number of things. What, did you le- what do you learn about yourself in that sort of remote environment? Uh, I guess the first thing is that you're only a human being and you've got all of nature there. You don't fight against nature, you work with nature and you survive if you don't panic. Hmm. So this was in 2008. Your friend? Gary Blagden. Is he an experienced uh, four-wheel driver? Extremely so. I choose my friends wisely (laughs) and a very good bush mechanic and unflappable in disposition. John, tell me how you came to be interested in making knives. That's very intriguing. I've still got the very first knife my father gave me. I was 10. He was a surgeon and he used to sharpen a lot of blades and uh, he always had knives. I've got his knife collection now and there is something about a beautiful precision instrument. Now you've brought a couple of a uh, couple of knives in. Could you just uh, open them up and just tell me about the two knives that you've got there. They're very they're very beautiful. Well, they're not Rambo knives. I'm not into big Rambo knives, um, and they're one of a very small collection that I've kept. Uh, one is my letter opener, and one is a pill cutter. Uh, they're made from the hardest steel, which is a, a broken uh, high-speed metal cutting blade. And it'll take uh, 30 or 40 hours to build something like this. You grind very carefully and you use wood and, and, and riveting. But if I was to make you a knife, I'd want, I'd want to know, first of all, uh, what you wanted it for. Mm-hmm. I'd have to look at your hand. Uh, then we'd have a discussion between hardness and flexibility and what they call the rock wall test of hardness. And uh, then I would make a knife to the exact dimensions of your hand and the use to which you were going to put it. Mm. And 30 to 40 hours to make a knife. What do you think about when when you're making knives? I think about nothing else but making that knife. It takes so much concentration. That sounds pretty therapeutic to me. It is, actually. I love it. But um, you make one mistake and you just start again. Mm. I guess doing something as fine as that, you would need to be concentrating, wouldn't you? You do. 
but I have many thoughts that come into my head and I'll turn off the grinder or the drill press or the buffing machine and I'll go walk to the other side of the shed and I'll write my thought and then I'll go back and finish what I'm doing. You cannot think about anything else while you're making a knife except exactly what you're doing. Hmm. What do you what do you like about your workshop? Oh, I'm the ultimate shed man. I just love going into a tool shop. You'll always find me in a hardware store or a library. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just something about tools and a bench and everything is made to my requirements. And it's a great place to sit there and think and fix things. And yeah, it's, it's a lovely place. Every bloke should have a shed. Yes. I have, um, I have a shed, but I have an office in the back of the shed. So I'm a bit of an unusual sheddy, I guess. <laughs> when did you get an interest in telling stories? When I was at Sabah School, when I came back from Penang in Malaya, where we lived, uh, I was asked to be Assistant Sabah School Superintendent. So how old are you at this stage? I was 17. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, I was helping out in the children's divisions, and I suddenly realised that I could hold their attention by telling stories, and that if you told uh, interesting stories, the big bogies of uh, looking after children called discipline uh, flows away mm. because they're interested, they're too interested in listening to you. And I realized that here was something that could really keep their attention and I had no problems and I just love their company and it all grew from there. What sort of stories do you tell these days? I have a specialty in which I like to find a Bible story and research it and research it from every different angle and then tell it uh, in a way that people ha are not expecting and give them details that they've never heard. And there is not a Bible story that you cannot research and do that. And it just comes to life. We have told stories to death. Mm. And uh, people start the story and we all say, oh, here we go again. Give them something new and they will listen to you. Tell me about the art of storytelling. Well, I call myself a storyteller more than a preacher. And when I preach, um, I keep in mind what Christ could do. He could engage somebody within 30 seconds. Mm. Uh, you look at the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He had her totally hooked in 30 seconds. And that changed the whole work in Samaria because of that short meeting. So when, when you start talking to people, Christ could engage the little children through to the 80-year-old uh, fathers of the church. And by telling the same story, uh, they would pick it up at the level appropriate to them. Um, you don't have to sermonize. People are smart enough to learn the lessons from life from stories or from the parables that Jesus taught. And that is an art form and to me, it is a compelling uh, art form that is really uh, propels me in life. There's hardly a night that I'm not sitting in my den, uh, not my workshop, but my little den up in, in the house where I'm working on a Bible story. Hmm. Now, Jesus told stories to groups, but he also, in the case of the woman at the well, spoke to a single person audience. Were there any differences in the way in which Jesus approached the stories that he told individually and then to a group? 
Um, yes, there would have been. Um, I never really thought of this, but some people, uh, when they talk to a single person, it was a little bit like Queen Elizabeth when she spoke of one, uh, Queen Victoria, sorry, when she spoke of one of her prime ministers who had come to visit her. This was Gladstone. And she wrote in her diary one night, Mr. Gladstone speaks to me as though he's addressing a public meeting. And so you talk to people and you totally engage them. And if you get everybody in the audience to feel that you're talking to them directly, then you've overcome the problem. Who's taught you the most about storytelling? It happened on a blustery winter's day in Newcastle, New South Wales, when my grandparents took me along to a Sabbath school seminar for the day. Now, at 15, I did not want to go. At 15, I wasn't to be trusted. And so they dragged me along. And to a 15-year-old on a winter's day, uh, back then, um, everybody smelled of mothballs to me. And I was sitting there just bored to tears. And about 3.30 in the afternoon, it had been a long day, Barry. This old guy gets up, he's bald, and I thought, here's another round of something or other. And he simply said, I'm gonna tell you how to tell a story. The very fact that he said story made me sit up, and I thought, well, this will be a change. And he said, I'm gonna tell you a story about a little girl who thought she had no friends, ended up with lots of friends. And he just told the story in a flat monotone. He said, now, as I look around, I can see two kids that are listening. I was one of them because I used the word story. I said, now, this time I'm going to animate my voice. He told exactly the same story. And he animated and said things like, haven't you seen, haven't you heard? And uh, he said, now I can see 10 or 15 children. He said, now I'm going to do it with actions. And he had a piece of folded up newspaper and a pair of scissors and he cut everything out. And all of a sudden he held his hands apart and there was all these little girls holding hands while the kids were running down the front. I sat there, I didn't run down the front, but I was absolutely transfixed. And then I discovered I had met the legendary Eric B. Hare. And in the space of 20 minutes, he, he really changed my life. Uh, I decided that one day I would tell stories like that. I was, uh, it was one of those God-inspired moments where he dragged me along against my will and better judgment or so I thought. And he said, you're going to hear something today that you'll never forget. And that was way back in 1961, and I have never forgotten it. There's a tradition in Australia, a storytelling tradition in Australia. Do you tell bush stories and do you do bush verse and those sorts of no, things? No, I don't. Um, I, I love poetry and I love Australian bush poetry. Um, most of my engagements uh, go the whole spectrum from uh, kindergarten where you take along a stuffed toy to tell the story through to uh, grey nomads, where you don't, and... Uh, <laughs> I have taken, uh, this year I've just finished my 101st week of prayer uh, in schools. And so uh, you, you speak usually three times in a day to your different groups, Little East, Middle, Primary and then High School. Uh, and uh, yeah, it it's just gives you experience. So I'm, I'm sort of being trained to, to speak right across the, the age groups. 
Now, you've recently done a series of stories on 3ABN Australia TV program, A Day with the King. That's Tell right. me about the stories. Well, the stories uh, turned out to be quite an e- exciting project, a bit daunting. Um, I was approached to, to prepare a series of 13 stories, uh, which later stretched to 26. On, and I think there's more coming, isn't there? Uh, <laughs> we'll find out. On, on the life of uh, Alan G. White, uh, called her Sunnyside Years when she was living here in Australia. And uh, this... Uh, country was was so privileged to have her here when she still at the height of her powers, although she was getting quite old. She was 66 when she came here and she built Sunnyside. So I researched all these stories about her life here in Australia and uh, we did did all the episodes, five-minute episodes. A lot of them were on site. And then we've been out on the college. We've been up looking at the college bell, down trying to find where the pharaoh would have been. And I found that the children have been fantastic. They've been very interested. They've never heard these stories. But what has really amazed me is the feedback that's returned after the broadcast from older people. And I go to a camp in Queensland or West Australia and and somebody will tell me who's well into their senior years, oh, I tune in on Sabbath mornings to uh, just to hear the stories about Ellen White. I haven't heard these stories before. So it has been uh, an extremely satisfying venture. John, what organisations are you involved with at present? I know you're, you're a very busy man, apart from your storytelling and your knife-making and these week of prayers that you do <laughs> and your preaching and so forth. What organisations are you involved with? Uh, well, uh, Sue and I have been uh, supporters of Asian Aid for 45 years, and Asian Aid uh, supports uh, nearly 150 schools in India and Bangladesh and Nepal, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and uh, it is just an incredible organisation. And uh, three years ago, they asked me to uh, join the board, and I did, and then I became deputy, but as of... A few months ago, I'm now chairman of Asian Aid. So I've had a few trips up there, and there's a lot of work. Uh, because of my background in education, I'm particularly interested in ensuring that the orphans and our sponsored children get the same level of education they would in any other school, that they're being cared for, and uh, negotiating with uh, church uh, leaders. And uh, it takes up a lot of my time, but it's very, very fulfilling. I, I love that organisation. Tell me about a typical week for you, John, in your retirement. Well, today is Thursday. I've uh, started off by filming four episodes for 3ABN on uh, on Monday. I had a church meeting on on Sunday, rather. On Monday, I had a church meeting. Every night I've been preparing... Uh, programs for meetings coming up. I've done over 130 meetings so far this year. And later on today, I'm working with a lady who was a career missionary and helping her write up her life story. So that'll be today's work. So how do you get time to get into your workshop? That is a big problem. Sometimes weeks will go past until I get this urge that I've got to get down there because of the the therapeutic nature of being there, so down I go. We're going to go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Dr John Hammond about his professional life and his expertise in geography. 
If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr Barry Harker and you are listening to Life Learnings. My guest is Dr John Hammond. In the final part of the program, I'll be talking with John about his career in education and geography. John, what's the attraction of geography for you? I would like to say that uh, I was born a geographer and that geographers have a unique way of looking at the world. But if I was really honest, I'd have to say that geography was the only subject I passed the first time I did my school leaving certificate. But on two occasions in my life, I had wonderful geography teachers who were wonderful teachers, wonderful geographers and wonderful people. And that's probably what pushed me in the direction of geography. Mm, there are always influential people in the mm. lives, aren't there? Tell me about your tertiary studies in geography and education. I, um, you mentioned geography and education. Actually, education came first. I really struggled in school, and more of, more of that presently. Uh, did so poorly that my younger brother finished his high school education two years ahead of me, which is a great way to learn true humility. And uh, I had decided that uh, being a teacher would be a good thing. But I was too big and too bold and too manly to be a primary teacher. I was going to be a secondary teacher, thank you very much. And so I finally accumulated a good enough score to get into Avondale to do a secondary teaching. And I looked with disdain upon the primary screeches, as we call them, and uh, proceeded to do poorly. And after two years, I got a note to go and see the academic dean, Dr. Higgins, and uh, he looked at me with his very sad expression. He said, John, he said, you can't continue. I said, is there something wrong with my grade point average? And he said, well, it hardly exists. (laughs) (laughs) He said, "Um, there's only two options, and uh, building construction or primary teaching, which was a fairly low status course. It was a two-year certificate course. And uh, I knew I was not very skillful at at building, so I uh, lined up on registration day with the primary screeches and everybody looked at me and was yelling out that you're in the long, wrong line. And uh, But in those days, you had to teach a class within three weeks of starting the course. And I took a Bible lesson down at the primary school and the lights just came on that day. I went back rejoicing. I was singing and I knew that I just had this this vision as I went back up to the dormitory. 
that all my education experiences through my life uh, and my lack of success in, in secondary teaching had all led to this one half hour that I just had today. And I never looked back after that. And so I taught for uh, seven years. My first appointment was to open a school, uh, and that was the Central Coast Adventist School. And uh, I started that school with 18 students. And uh, we, uh, if you go there now, that was 1969, there's nearly 1,000 students there. And it is just one of our showpiece schools. After seven years, though, we had grown it to year 10, and uh, I had become a high school teacher because uh, I had done the naughty thing and started the high school when the division had told me that I was not allowed to. Uh, they had, I had to wait till I had 30 students. I started with six. And so I had to teach high school subjects, and I taught humanities and geography, came up here to Avondale and taught at the high school and I uh, decided that I should try and get a degree. And so I, I rocked up to Newcastle University on registration day and I said, do you take uh, mature students? They said, yes. Um, I was 30 by this stage and uh, what's your major field? I didn't have a clue. I didn't even know what a major was. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was somebody in the army. And they said, what subject would you like to do, specialize in? Oh, I said, well, I, uh, I passed geography in high school. <laughs> so I, I was enrolled in a, uh, uh, a geography major, ended up with three majors in geography, education, and sociology, and uh, did my honors and went on to do a PhD at Massey University in New Zealand. Uh, but I wrote my honours thesis while I was living in Fiji. Tell me about your dissertation topics and why did you select those? Well, my first one uh, related to teaching. I uh, Looking at the New South Wales geography curriculum, I used what is called the solo taxonomy, which looks at the structure of observed learning outcomes as an accurate way of measuring outcomes. And I actually became an examiner uh, for the uh, high school certificate exams one year, but I used my method and it was absolutely foolproof. It didn't become widely accepted because it took years of immersion within it before it really uh, sunk in how to use it, but it did prove that the solo taxonomy by Collis and Biggs uh, was a, a very, very good way of, of evaluating things. Um, then uh, in New Zealand, I, uh, I had a motorbike accident. Um, most of my problems in life are self-inflicted, but I rode through a fence at 100 kilometres an hour and not having seen it due to my colour blindness, I didn't see the spaces on the fence. Anyhow, I was given a few years off to have a series of operations and uh, the... Uh, I got bored and uh, enrolled for a PhD. And I looked at how the paradigms in geography had changed over a 50-year period. Uh, many of our listeners will have done geography at school where you learnt the rivers of New South Wales and the products of Victoria. And it was what was called the Capes and Bays approach. You learnt all the cities and the states and the products. 
And that was very, very set. And uh, if you think that uh, philosophy in, in religion is uh, very hard to change, it's also the same in academia. And geography changed from that to a systems approach. And in the 1960s and 70s, in came radical geography where you looked at uh, differences in uh, people's lifestyles in different places in the world. So uh, the place part of geography came in. In came economics. And uh, so my uh, PhD thesis uh, looked at how geography had become institutionalized what caused the changes and what caused the barrier to those changes. And I was very privileged. I picked up a vice chancellor's award, which I paid for a round-world trip, and I interviewed uh, 250 professors worldwide and filled 150 90-minute tapes and typed out every last word. It wasn't what they said. Sometimes it's what they didn't say, the pauses, the size. But that ended up as being an extremely valuable database. And so I ended up with uh, one of the world's more expensive uh, uh, doorstops. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that in the, yeah. uh, in the second hour of our, uh, of our conversation, because I find that a fascinating area. So what's the ongoing significance of the work that you've done? Has it had any impact on the field? Um, it sat uh, ignored for a few years. But as the geographers that I've interviewed uh, have passed on, um, all of a sudden people are realizing that I did a recording of their life story, their entry into geography, uh, the barriers to them going up or down, and uh, it has become quite sought after, and uh, it is satisfying to see that it is now widely quoted. A copy set up here in the college library, and I put a $5 note inside. So anyone who read this piece of deathless prose would be rewarded. And every year I used to check it. For 16 years, it was still there. And when I took the graduation address at the college in 2008, I mentioned the money that was in there. And uh, there was a rush on the library on my <laughs> thesis <laughs> until somebody got the $5 note. <laughs> well, they say that uh, theses are only um, read by just a few people. Exactly. The examiners and yeah. the authors and maybe the author's family and the, authors and, the, and the supervisor. What's the status of geography as a discipline today? Well, uh, it's a good question because um, as a Christian, I believe that the, the world... Obviously, we know it's coming to an end. We talk about the seven last plagues. Uh, I'm particularly interested because I, I see a lot of these things as being brought on by man and Satan. And you look at capitalism, uh, which is built on, uh, it's predicated on increasing your profit year by year. And we are using our, uh, our resources at an appalling rate. And as long as there is profit to be extracted, Mankind will do it, and now we're changing our atmosphere, we're experiencing uh, global warming. I don't panic about these things because I believe it is part of the, the end-time scenario of this world, and I admire people who are working hard to preserve what we've got, and, and we are instructed to do that too. But uh, geography, I think, has come from a subject that was uh, at one stage struggling for recognition as a science, but its ability to map and to graph and to uh, track what is happening uh, economically and with climate 
uh, and uh, differences between regions uh, is going through quite a renaissance at present. What's the impact of um, instant imaging maps and information on geography? Well, because uh, we're using all sorts of modern uh, satellite sensing and the uh, mapping of, of, of details on this earth. I mean, I use Google Earth. Uh, it travels in my pocket. And I used Google Earth to find where Alan White's furrow would have been uh, just a few weeks ago and uh, measured it down to the exact measurements that I was looking for. Uh, and it can be used in so many things. Mm. Where does it sit in the secondary context today? What's the status of geography as a subject in high schools? Oh, it's becoming more popular. Um, it still sometimes uh, rides in the middle of whether it's a science or whether it's a humanities subject, even when you get to university. But um, the background they give you is a very broad base and a very uh, long-lasting base uh, in uh, uh, that uh, combination of physical and human geography. Mm. Now, you talked before about how you got into education. Um, tell me about the impact of your experience in schools as a student on your teaching. I understand that having gone through the experience of finding school difficult, that that would have an impact on the way that you viewed students who were struggling, perhaps? Yes, I um, I was homeschooled uh, for the first few years. And then as my father was uh, gaining his senior qualifications, uh, we lived for, for a while in the United States. And uh, the theories of Benjamin Spock were emerging, uh, where you should never smack a child as harmful to them. Well, I really thought that was good. And then we moved to Scotland, where they still use the strap with some vigor. And I got the strap the first morning. Uh, then we moved back to Malaya, to Penang, where, where we grew up. We lived there for 12 years. And I, uh, for my parents to remain there, my mother was could no longer teach us. It was beyond her. And uh, she always thought she was a poor teacher, but she was actually very good. Mm. And uh, we went to a large Catholic school, and uh, there was a man there who uh, who brought about my salvation. He was one of the lay teachers, and there was also a teacher there who uh, occasioned my uh, mental block, my phobia of maths, uh, I actually became a very good maths teacher because I can look into a child's face and see the look of panic when they're not understanding. Mm. But uh, this man, uh, he he had a few problems. Uh, his real name I won't reveal, but uh, we call him Prawnhead because he would go red very quickly. Uh, he had a broken finger, never set. He'd go cross-eyed when he was angry. So when he came into the room and yelled, you stand up, at least a quarter of the class stood up. And uh, he, he would uh, write a problem on the board in maths and hand you a stick of chalk and start to count to 10. And uh, at the stroke of 10, uh, he would hit you across the back of the legs with a cane really hard. And you would just fold up and he would pick you up and start again. And uh, even today, if you were to give me a maths problem and look at me while I'm doing it, I would just get a mental blank. You could beat me or you wouldn't beat me, Barry, but anyone could look at me and I just would not do it. You walk away and I'll work out the problem. 
Mm. Um, but finally, uh, I would be thrown out after having perhaps six strokes. He realised I was not going to solve the problem, and then I would be caught by the deputy principal who would just take you down and, and give you a hiding out in the quadrangle. So I used to hide. First of all, I used to try and follow him, and, and he would catch me because he'd walk around with, with white sneakers on. And on this particular day, I decided I would hide down in the college, uh, in, in the school uh, assembly hall. They had a big stage, and I was hiding in the curtains. And the man was sitting there playing the piano. His name was Jimmy Boyle. He was my geography teacher. And I knew that he had been brutally tortured during the war and uh, badly treated, and that he uh, had uh, lost his family, and he was rather melancholy, but he's very musical. And whenever he had a, a spare class, he would, he would go down and play the piano, and he spotted me. And he could also see that the deputy principal was about to find me, and he called me over to the piano. And he just said, say nothing, just stand there. And next minute I became aware that the fearsome deputy principal was next to me, and uh, Jimmy Boyle stood, and I can still remember it was the grand piano. He just struck the a chord, and I could see the big bass string vibrating, and he said, uh, it's all right, uh, John Hammond is with me today. And uh, the deputy just went and walked away. And uh, if there was anybody from Penang who went to St. Xavier's and I said the name Lahore, which is Hokkien Chinese for tiger, they will immediately know uh, and they'll know that I'm not exaggerating about the tigerish ferocity of that man. That was the way you ran schools in those days. Uh, there were some very fine people in that school. And uh, he told me that uh, he'd been invited to... Uh, enter a contest for the national anthem coming up because Malaya was about to become Malaysia, Medeca, freedom. And he would play a tune and he said, uh, do you like that? If he had to play Ba Ba Black Sheep, I would have said, that's very nice, Mr Boyle. And after a long time, uh, the bell went and he stood up and he put his arm around me and he said, John Hammond, I said, I don't know what's going to happen to you. We talk about you in the scarf room. And half the staff reckon you are as dumb as, and the other half reckon you are as smart as. And uh, he said, I don't know. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, Jesus loves you, and so do I. And he gave me a hug on the shoulders, uh, which you can't do these days, and he walked out of my life. And that actually uh, brought about my conversion. Uh, I was baptized a few months later. And I'm always proud to say that it was a devoted Catholic teacher, lay brother. Uh, if you had have asked me for many years to draw a picture of the face of Christ, I would have always seen his face. Um, if you had asked me to draw a picture of the devil, it would have been Prawnhead and Lahore uh, combined. And if ever you go to Malaysia and you hear the Nagara coup being played, listen very carefully because... Uh, Jimmy Boyle won the competition with a little bit of help from John Hammond. But that was uh, one of the most significant moments of my life. It's what I call a crystallizing moment. 
everybody in this life has paralyzing moments mm. and and everybody in this life has paralyzing moments far worse than mine. I mean, I had my accident. I was beaten badly at school. I got numerous hidings, many of which I deserved, I might add. But these are all paralyzing. But if your mind and heart is open to the Holy Spirit, you'll receive crystallizing moments that you'll never forget where your life just crystallizes and you see what it is all about. And I praise God for those sorts of moments. But that, he was my geography teacher, he was a mm. teacher, all these things. Uh, a 13-year-old doesn't have very complex thoughts, but when you're older, they come back as complex thoughts and they build the person that you are. And I feel a great empathy towards a child who is not learning. I feel nothing but sympathy towards a person in the street who we might see as as hopeless and a hard case and an alcoholic, but I I also realize that you've had things in your life that must absolutely have broken you Mm. and that there is not a soul who cannot be saved. Mm. That story about uh, Mr. Boyle, very powerful, isn't it, really? Certainly was. I went Mm. back to find him. He died at 51. Mm. I went back to find Prawnhead. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to say to him, but it would have been kindly. But he was dead and the tiger died. Mm. And uh, so that part of my life, uh, it's closed. Uh, so but I don't the, have any regrets. But out of that difficult experience that you had came this wonderful future for you as well. I, I wouldn't change it. Mm. I wouldn't want to repeat uh, many things that happened. Mm. But uh, God has a purpose in leading you through life, and, and no person's character is going to be developed until they've been tested for, for a while. Mm. You've spent a lot of time in educational administration. What's been the most satisfying part of that work for you? Uh, well, I have uh, over 1,500 Facebook friends, and the majority are ex-students. It is wonderful to see a child uh, act as a child and then uh, develop and then become thinking adults and then see God take over their lives and just living here in Kurumbong, uh, meeting with ex-students who are now the, the power powerhouses uh, in our church and in the community um, is wonderful. And, uh, you know, before I, we were talking about what do I do during a day, I omitted to mention probably the most important part and the main reason why I retired is I wanted to be a full-time grandpa. And it's hardly a day when I haven't got my little grandsons. My two granddaughters live up in Queensland. I see them frequently, but not frequently enough. But uh, my little grandsons around the house, they follow me in the garden and in the workshop. And to see their little minds develop and become inquiring and then start to mature... um, in the education administration, it has flown through, flowed through from that, and also to see a school system come out of a collection of schools with a, a back of the church mentality to school systems and and highly complex and successful large schools. Uh, I've had the best job in the whole world. Mm, yeah, immensely satisfying. What's been one of the most difficult things you've had to deal with as an, as an educational administrator? Uh, people. Uh, people, of course, make life interesting, but 
oh, thinking back as national director, fairly early in the piece, uh, somebody started to uh, talk to the media about uh, the Harry Potter films that were coming on and the books that were being written, and there was a huge amount of media hype, and I, I suspect that the media was looking for an opportunity to play off Harry Potter against a church. And uh, so somebody had said something, and all of a sudden the media were onto me, and uh, it's what I call ambush uh, journalism. Um, I'd be driving in the car and I get a phone call, and I go hands free, and uh, I suddenly realized that I was on air. And uh, then they said, Oh, now we've got somebody waiting to talk to you because it would be talk back radio. And uh, I realized I was up against some person who was taking the extreme opposite view to us. They start off now, uh, how come you have banned uh, Harry Potter books from your library in all your schools? And I, I, could, I could sense a really combative atmosphere. And knowing that I could be heard by up to half a million people, uh, you don't have any time to prepare. I had no idea that it was coming, and uh, I just had to tell the truth. And I said, I have not given instructions to any school librarian or, or education director in any school or any state to ban Harry Potter from the libraries, but you won't find it there. Why? Why not? What's wrong with it? I said, well, the book is focused on the occult. And I said, as a Christian school, uh, we want to fill our school with the Holy Spirit and we're not even giving the occult entry to the school. What if a child brings along the book and reads it at lunchtime? I said, well, I'm not going to rip it off them, but we are going to teach positively. And so it would go on like this, and I, I would get misquoted uh, by a newspaper, major newspapers. And then I was getting phone calls at 2 in the morning from some overseas uh, media outlet. And I did hear one back, and... Uh, they, they, I heard my very sleepy voice answering the phone and, uh, and I said, ring me back at uh, nine o'clock in the morning in my office and I hung up. They played that to set the atmosphere for a national director who was very negative towards the media. And so I came to realize how quickly you could be uh, manipulated uh, and they could make you appear an idiot any time they wanted to, just by quoting individual words, uh, I'd come out of my office and there'd be a film crew. And uh, there was one that caught me as I was blowing my nose. And so there's a headline for them, you know. And uh, uh, blown away by Harry Potter, you know, things like this. It would just happen the whole time. And about a year later, I got a, uh, a folder from the General Conference, our headquarters in, in the USA, uh, full of all the newspaper articles that they had culled, 73 countries, and it was all done by the media trying to promote children to go and see the Harry Potter films, to go and buy the Harry Potter books. And I tell you what, Barry, our stand was justified because uh, as the series uh, proceeded, and I've never read a Harry Potter book, but it got darker and darker and darker and deeper and deeper into the occult. And I know people 
uh, have told me who have experience with the occult that that series of books was written knowing that it would drag young people down to make them familiar and comfortable and desiring uh, more exposure with the occult. And it has been... That would be probably one of the worst experiences that I've had to go through, not personally, but to see the impact that it can have on, on children. Did you ever have any media training to deal with crises like these? I did go to a, uh, a course on how to handle the media, and uh, it was a defensive course, and I went to another course later, uh, and they felt that I was a little bit too defensive, and I said that was from hard-fought experience. Um, and yes, I have learned a bit that you can be positive and breezy and take them with you, but I didn't really have any training. It was just one of those things. And I don't think uh, you could really prepare because uh, you're up against journalists who are very, very clever, uh, but the training that I did get was, was very valuable. Uh, I think the end result would still be the same, but I think I would uh, have learnt some valuable skills from handling the media. John, we're running out of time for our first uh, first interview. I'm just wondering whether you would like to offer a prayer for our listeners as we close off this part of our conversation. I'd love to. And I think given that you've um, talked about your injury and your convalescence and uh, your experiences in schools, some of the negative experiences you might like to talk uh, with specific reference to yeah. people who perhaps have had similar experiences yeah. and have struggled as a result of that. But let me warn you, my prayer is a positive one. Thank you. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, uh, we bow our heads before you. I'm conscious of the fact that uh, many people are listening and every person in this world who is capable of thinking and reflection uh, will have had negative experiences in their life and uh, have been tested in ways that I couldn't even begin to imagine. But I'm also confident, dear Father, that you know every one of us. You know us intimately. You love us, uh, unbelievably love us, and uh, you just are longing to have us again for that intimate uh, experience and relationship that you enjoyed with Adam and Eve. And I just pray for every person uh, that they will look towards you, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and uh, no matter how difficult your life has been and is at this moment, you will find fulfillment in doing so. And so I pray a special blessing upon every bowed head in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. John, thank you. I look forward to the next conversation. Remember to tune in again next time as I continue my conversation with Dr. John Hammond. Bye for now. God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.